Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk about all things software and technology. I am Ben Popper, your host and director of content here at Stack Overflow. Joined as I often am by my partner in crime, editor of our blog and maestro of our newsletter, Ryan Donovan. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Ben. So today we are going to be chatting with Joel Hellermark about a topic which is near and dear to our hearts, the use of AI to help share and spread knowledge throughout an organization. Stack Overflow has done that for a long time as a public platform for a community of developers. And obviously Stack Overflow for Teams has kind of a similar mission. So we were excited to chat with Joel, who works at SANA, Unlocking Knowledge with AI is the slogan of the company. So Joel, founder and CEO at SANA, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. So AI is all the rage these days. Every company has an AI strategy and an AI team and an AI something in their product or mission. Tell us a little bit about yourself. How'd you get into the world of software and technology and what led you to focus on you know, this particular use case? So I got into to programming when, when I was, was a kid and came across this Andrew Ng courses from Stanford. So it was the first set of online courses released from Stanford. And, and Andrew has since obviously gone on to, to pioneer that field with, with Coursera. And one of the biggest things for me was, was realizing that you could write code once that could run infinitely and that you could capture human capabilities in these systems and augment humans with them. So the first set of programs I developed was everything from chessbots to first-gen AI type of programs. And I then got more and more obsessed with how could you actually use that to augment humans to solve some of the world's most pressing problems. And when we look at knowledge in organizations, it's, it's sort of a meta problem that if you solve that, you solve everything else. If you empower everyone with the knowledge that they need and with a knowledge assistant, then they can go on and, and solve their pressing problems, whether that's working with Merck to enable their researchers to access the knowledge more effectively, or during the pandemic, empowering hospitals. Once we can massively unlock the knowledge uh, with the help of, of AI and augment everyone to, to learn more effectively, we see massive positive cascade effects of that across the organizations. Mm, nice. So... Let's get down to brass tacks. Is, is uh, AI going to destroy us? Are we going to have terminators from all this? It's going to, you know, protect our serocon. Yeah, they're learning everything, Joel. Yeah. They know all of it. <laughs> I think it's important to note that these are not closed-looped, self-improving systems. These are systems that are very much in, in our control. And in fact, they require a lot of human intervention to improve. And... When we look at the state of these models today, there are massive risks, but those risks are elsewhere. And equally, I, I think we're seeing an era where I would say we're returning more and more to the Renaissance era of polymaths, where people are all of a sudden having access to these systems that not only has all of the world's knowledge, but also has all of their company's knowledge and all of their knowledge. And when measuring the IQ of these systems, they have an IQ of approximately 155. 
So basically, you're employing every single human with this super intelligent polymath that has all of the world's knowledge in, in their head at the same time. It can help them go out and solve any right. task. So I think short term, we'll really see the return of the polymath. And equally, we'll have to fight off some of those shorter term risks, such as misguided recommender systems. But given the control we have of these this systems, it's very unlikely that we would see any extreme case uh, such as the one you, you mentioned, Ryan. <laughs> sure, sure. I mean, that's easy to say, but, you know, there are emergent properties that we only found out about, you know, six or nine months after the AI was capable of them. So who's to say? <laughs> Before we get any farther down the AI doomer route, I want to dig in a little. So, you know, we've talked on the show lots about overflow AI, like in our example and yours, right? You bring in not just let's say, you know, a chat GPT style thing that is learned from the corpus of the internet, but also has your company's internal documentation and has your company's internal code repos. And so you can ask it a more pointed question about something you know. Not only is that useful because it has private knowledge, but also it's maybe less likely to hallucinate if you're using like a rag style approach to prompting where it's just looking at a certain data set to give you the answer. What kind of things have you built on top of that? I saw on the website an example of sort of I ask an AI assistant, hey, shoot somebody an email about next quarter's roadmap. It writes the email for me, and then I check it, human in the loop, and I send it off. So, you know, what kind of documents do you ingest? And what are the, you know, AI assistants, what are they built on top of and what are they capable of? Of course. Yeah. So, so making these systems work is a fun, quite new science. Really where, where this starts is how can you index all of the company's knowledge that already exists? So you need to build crawlers for all of your company's apps. That can be, you know, 100 plus apps if you want to cover the full spectrum of company apps. The second point then is, is how do you vectorize all of this, this data to make it searchable with semantic search? Then once you've done that, you need to do a lot of ranking. And in order to understand what sources for this particular user might be most relevant, which could be different if you're a sales rep or an engineer, for example. And then once you've found all of the relevant context, at that point, you want to feed it to the LLM. So we solve that, that stack end to end. But once you've set that up, you also want to monitor it and run different test cases, see how you can improve the configuration, add more sources, monitor areas which you don't cover, where you want to add FAQs to, for example. So there, the monitoring and the analytics around, around the assistance you build, we, we cover as, as well. So we make it as simple as you know, just sign in with all of the apps that you want to connect, make it very easy for you to configure. And you don't really have to think about how you do tech splitting and all of the things that go on behind the scenes to make the ranking work uh, really well. Hmm. Are the uh, LLMs difficult to monitor? Are you able to monitor more than just you know outputs and, and giving thumbs up or thumbs down? What we've seen so far is that the qualitative evaluation is still the best one there. If you have 50 really good test cases and you run it across them, you much more easily capture the nuances of what the model is outputting well and, and not uh, through that. We do some automatic like hallucination detection and, mm. and those sorts of things, but the primary guidance is still the qualitative review of you know the 50 top scenarios. Yeah. I've heard of, of like confidence scores and explainability. 
as part of this. But it is probably true that, you know, the user is probably the best judge of what's a good answer or not. Yeah, and, and you can't always put put uh, that responsibility on the end user, but as the creator of these systems. And for example, when we partner with companies, you'll you'll typically have someone centrally that's responsible for making sure that the assistant works really well. That's who we partner with to get it right. And there are several approaches as, as well to, to do that more in real time and, and sending it to multiple LLMs and comparing the responses to uh, do those detections in, in real time. But setting up the configuration is typically maintained by, by a central user. Right. So for your assistance, are you relying on a foundation model built by someone else and then fine tuning with companies and their data? Are you creating your own foundational models? There's different scales for that. It could be a 7 billion, it could be a hundred billion, you know, depending on what your use case is. And I guess, you know, one of the questions you had brought up in your email, kind of playing off that idea, once you tell us what models you're relying on, you know, how do you plan to compete with, you know, the Googles and Microsofts and OpenAIs of the world, which have unlimited funding and more GPUs and, you know, are all chasing this same space of, let us be the one to look at all your data, you know, collect everything together in one area and then be the ultimate AI assistant to you or your organization? What we're uh, really focused on is how do you connect these models to your company knowledge graph? And how do you maintain a, a knowledge graph that's up to date and uh, comprehensive? So we're model agnostic and we enable you to bring whatever model you prefer, whether you want to run Claude or GPT-4 or self-host a, a model or anything we might train in, in the future. We're model agnostic, but we're really focused on the workflow of indexing and creating that knowledge graph that you can ultimately connect to build your company-specific assistant. Gotcha. That makes sense. And so, yeah, I guess Ryan was sharing a piece with me recently that'll be going up on the blog soon about, you know, data quality. How do you understand data quality? So at Stack Overflow, for the website, there's always been voting, you know, upvotes and downvotes. Is this the right answer to this coding question? Is there a better answer? You know, and sometimes is this answer stale? And so within a company, if they have Stack Overflow for Teams, it's the same model. Let's crowdsource essentially the best knowledge and rely on the wisdom of the crowd and your colleagues to sort of update you or change things. So from your perspective, if you come into a company and they have documentation here and there across a whole bunch of different things, you're sort of saying your job is to figure out how best to connect the knowledge graph to whatever model they want to use in a way that then provides great results. So what is your approach, I guess, to creating a clean, you know, accurate knowledge base within a company that could have data in all different kinds of places and it may not be annotated or tagged or scored in terms of its accuracy, right? Like they could give you a lot of wiki pages that are actually inaccurate. They could say, this is our wiki, you know, please ingest this. And then the model is just going to give, you know, outdated answers. That's a very good point. And I, I think you've done something clever there at, at Stack Overflow in making the users also support you in, in correcting that. And this is a very big part of our offering. You shouldn't assume that, you know, as soon as you set it up, that everything will be correct. But that's really where the work starts, where you can both identify gaps, where you can see these areas we're not currently covering, but equally identify out of that information. So parts mm -hmm. of that is, is done automatically where we can surface to the audience, but also giving the users the ability to correct this. And that creates this reinforcing loop where the more users that use the system, you can quickly detect areas 
which you don't cover, and then you can quickly cover those, and then you build out the knowledge graph accordingly. And that's really where I think a very big part of the value lies. If you build the knowledge graph that you're able to connect to the LLMs, the LLMs are incredibly powerful reasoning engines, absurdly powerful, and will only get more powerful, but they're only as good as their context. And if you can't feed them relevant, up-to-date information about the problem you're looking to solve, they'll be unable to, to do so. Another aspect that we have of the, of the Sun AI product is, is also the meeting recordings, which is incredibly powerful, where you can also just connect and index all of the company meetings. What that ultimately enables then is an automatic wiki, basically. Because a lot of the context, a lot of the decisions, all of those things are, are typically shared in meetings. And what we've been expecting people to do in, in the past is you know, go and add constantly all of the company knowledge into a wiki. Mm-hmm. We don't think that's a very scalable approach. We think in the future, wiki will, will write itself. And ultimately, that's what we're looking to build. So we talk about hooking up the meetings and the chat channels and keeping everything up to date. How do you keep it all up to date? Is there sort of an inferencing engine? Do you have other tricks up your sleeve? Yeah, it's it's re-indexed continuously. So whenever new new knowledge is added or removed, that's instantly updated in the graph. And what we also need to do beyond that is get a good sense for what sources we can trust. And that's really where the ranking becomes very critical because you might have conflicting answers in Slack versus you know, your company, Vicky, and being able to find the most trusted resources when there is conflicted uh, becomes a very important part of the ranking problem. So one of the things you brought up in your email, which I was interested to see, was the idea of regulation. You know, we joked before about, hey, are these systems too powerful? But certainly, you know, they are disrupting education. You know, they could be very disruptive to, you know, artists and illustrators and creators whose copyrighted work, you know, can now sort of be processed at a simple request to a Gen AI. And, you know, they could be used as anything can, you know, as a tool by hackers, let's say, to, you know, craft far more articulate and personalized, you know, phishing emails or something of that nature. So there have been, you know, people who have stood up before governments in the United States and the EU advocating for and against regulation. Where do you sit on the regulation question? One of the challenges we could face if we implement some of these regulations is that they're going to be very costly to to meet. And ultimately, what that drives is smaller companies will need to invest a lot of time and resources just to meet these regulations. And and most likely, that will mean that when they prioritize their markets, they'll need to do it according to the regulations. Otherwise, they'll spend the first year's sort of pre-product market fit uh, just looking to meet this. The second part is that they're quite misguided in, in terms of measuring the model size. It's, it's a bit like counting the lines of code. It doesn't really make sense to regulate the model size. There will always be loops around that. We need to look very specifically at the application side and, and not measure the inputs, but, but look at the outputs. And, and I think that's a second area that's slightly misguided. However, I also am very optimistic that we'll find the right model here. And, and ultimately, I think for European companies, this has historically been an area where we've been able to be particularly strong because of our historical data regulations. So when we launch in the US, we're already way ahead in meeting the requirements of those enterprises. 
it's still early. And given that, we might see some of the ideas that are not the right ones, but I'm, I'm positive we'll get there ultimately. Mm. So do you think regulation is ultimately needed at some point, even if it's down the line, it's not the sort of clumsy first attempt stuff? I think it's very much needed. And uh, we're seeing some areas that I think could need a lot more regulation. One area I am particularly questioning is, is the one around recommender systems. We basically have recommender systems steer a very big part of the world's population's views. And effectively, their entire worldview day to day is just fed through some optimization criteria that someone who probably didn't think that much about the impact of it, but rather just maximizing minutes set up. And I'm surprised almost a decade in that we still don't have any meaningful regulation in terms of the transparency of those recommenders. Hmm. So this field is changing so rapidly. It feels like, you know, every day I see new research released, you know, that's finding ways to push these models to new levels of performance, to make smaller models that are, you know, on the same level of performance with huge ones, and, you know, also to expand them in new directions, you know, where previously they were not as capable. So if you look back a year and a half ago at what image generators could do, and now you compare that to today, you know, it's night and day, the level of clarity and detail and accuracy based on your text prompt. And it seems like video is kind of in that baby stage where it looks a little off and you can't really ask it for much, but you know, improving rapidly kind of along the same pathway as, as images. So when you look out a year from now, I guess I would ask a two-pronged question. From your sort of standpoint as someone, you know, focused on the knowledge graph and AI assistance, what are you excited about? And then more broadly, like are there areas that you see coming that you think are going to be just really exciting or that you might incorporate in your organization, you know, that are from these other areas, whether that be, you know, sight, sound, video, images, brain, computer interface. I mean, you, you tell me. One area I'm very excited about is uh, building reasoning on top of this model. So if you think about these models, you know, every word you give it is basically its unit of time. And we're not giving them a lot of time to think at the moment. Uh, we're cutting them off often mid-reasoning. For example, if you just ask the model to criticize itself, it very often identifies its errors. Right. And if we can build really powerful reasoning on top of this, these models, right. uh, they're going to be way more capable than they are today. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I want to poke and prod that a little bit. Let me ask you. So, you know, you can do chain of thought prompting and you can do, you know, a critic actor model. And we find that that often creates better results and that the model can even identify simple, you know, errors that it's made or improve its math or improve its logic. But fundamentally, is the backpropagation only, you know, sort of structure of an LLM, you know, like it's just predicting the next token. Can that be set up so that it meditates on things and thinks on things and comes back to you and finally says, this is really the best answer I can give you. Like I've thought this through, you know, I spent 24 hours on it and I've come up with a couple of variations and I feel good about this one now, you know, because like it could go on forever. I mean, if you ask it to say like, I'd like you to review this answer, please, it could review it a million times. Like, how is it going to know does it have a confidence score? You know, does it have some like level of like, okay, well, you asked me to check this again. I did. And now I'm giving you my final answer, right? Because those techniques you pointed out work really well. And they're really interesting. You could build that into a system. You could say, give me your answer and then think about it for five minutes and do a couple, you know, runs of critic actor and come back and do that even overnight tonight. And if in the morning you decided you found a better answer, tell me. But 
is there a point in time where it would be, and not that it has to be more human, where it sort of says like, all right, I've come to the end of the road here. I've thought about this a lot. And this is the, you know, this is the answer I want to give. And then I'm done. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to pose a question back to you, Ben, on that. Do you think humans are doing anything else than predicting the next token? Sometimes no. Sometimes I, I mean, <laughs> I, I'm not. I'm literally just words come out of my mouth. Like I'm not thinking about them. They're just flying out of my mouth. <laughs> you know, like on a podcast, I'm well suited to that. I could just talk. I'm just, yeah, a word prediction machine myself. I think some humans are. We're not all just tap dancing. Not every human is. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, if Einstein, if he's there mulling stuff over and he decides like everybody else was wrong, you know, I actually think the universe is like this. Or Galileo's like, no, the earth's not flat, it's round. That is the kind of thing that I'm curious if an LLMs can do. Can they come up with something completely original that contradicts all the texts that they've read. Because yeah, most people are just, they're just stringing together words to answer the question you know, that's been posed before them or to try to solve the problem. We say things that are based on our emotions and our biological needs, which the machine doesn't have, but like we're talking about a rational discourse thing. Yeah, most people are word prediction machines, but not everyone. What about those original creative thinkers? Really the task of this model is when we say, you know, predict the next token, basically we're just trying to find the most effective way of embedding a world model. And now it seems to be one of the most effective ones. There are suggestions for other approaches that might not be technically feasible, like using Kolmogorov complexity for that. But currently what it seems like is by just training a model on predicting the next token, you can create a very information-dense worldview. And if you predict the next token, you can predict the next chapter. If you can predict the next chapter, you can predict the next book. And if you just train a model on scientific articles to predict the next word, it first has to learn the science to do that. So it seems to be a very good learning algorithm. And, and arguably, it seems to be a way better learning algorithm than, than the ones humans might entail. If you just compare the size to our neural nets compared mm. to the models and the number of, of connections. Right. It's maybe one hundredth of the size. I don't want to drown Ryan out and we're really getting into <laughs> the weeds here, but I was thinking about this yesterday. Okay, so like in the past when you had these tiny models in the dark days of early neural nets, they were obviously much smaller than our brains. But now, you know, people are talking about training models that are a hundred times bigger than today's biggest models. And so if you start to approach a hundred billion or a trillion neurons, you know, like we're getting into the ballpark of like what humans are working with. Now, there's all kinds of things in our brains that are not just neurons. There's, there's folds and there's chemicals and there's, you know, other things that, that maybe, you know, play a part in our intelligence. But let's say every second that I'm awake is like running a cycle on a GPU. So then I'm a baby and I have a certain number of neurons and then those neurons are growing and then I'm running every training run is a minute in time or whatever, a second in time. So that by the time I get to be a year, I've run X number of training runs and changed the weights X number of times. I don't really know, yeah, like how to compare them directly, but something really fascinating I was telling Ryan about recently is like in these new studies where they've been able to, for example, help a paralyzed person speak by learning, you know, what these signals in their brain mean. And then the algorithm can say, oh, they're thinking about an A, they're thinking about a B, they're thinking about this word, and then it can let that person speak just by thinking. Or we had uh, someone on from Berkeley who, you know, they taught the machine to learn language. And then Facebook recently had one where they would have somebody watch a video or imagine something and the machine would tell you what they were looking at or even imagining and could say, oh, this person's looking at a cat. And in all those scenarios, what they found, and this is interesting because these models used to be black box, is that if you look at the signals from the neural net, they look 
similar to the signals from the brain. So in an unsupervised learning environment, trying to figure out how to mimic or translate what the brain is doing when it sees something, the neural net finds its way to the same solution. So I don't know. It's starting to make me think maybe the architecture we stumbled upon as a metaphor is more than just a metaphor. 100%. One of the fields that I find very interesting at the moment is studying these models using some of the same approaches that we've deployed in, in, in neuroscience. And right. I think we'll probably find it easier to understand the human brain through using these models than studying the human brain uh, di- directly. And I think we're, we're going to discover some algorithms that work particularly well in this context. And they're like, oh, like back propagation that's started in these models. And then you're like, oh, this is probably something that humans should be doing as well. And right. one of my favorite examples is when they moved the Eiffel Tower to Rome and they could just capture those neurons and then they could ultimately place it somewhere completely different. And they could basically inject information and, and move information in these models. And I think studying the nature of, of these models will probably tell us a lot about the human brain as well. Yeah, I think that's right. I'm, I'm with you there. And that's, that's what I'm most excited about. Ryan, <laughs> sorry, I've been hogging the conversation. What, there what are you your go. thoughts? No, it just makes me think that in um, cognitive psychology, there's a concept of uh, activation nodes. And, you know, reading about text embeddings today that the parameters are sort of arbitrarily set at the beginning and they are trained and adjusted by finding, you know, similar things and opposite things and then sort of adjusting the parameters so they're closer or farther away. I wonder if the concept of activation nodes could be sort of linked to those parameters that those are the sort of conceptual links there. Yeah. And to Joel's point, I was reading recently something about how we get from, you know, the data that flows into your eyes to deciding what it is we're seeing. And, you know, there's lots of optical illusions in the world that can confuse you. And there's ways, you know, just sitting in a room that I could play tricks on myself with my eyes. And it was interesting because they found what the brain did in sort of three stages was similar in some ways to what these neural nets did, which is first they try to find like, the edges of the frame and they like find the, you know, different where the edges connect. And then they try to rotate the edges to see if that like provides more information. And then they look for like texture within, you know, the planes that they've created. And a lot of things from ImageNet on down, that's the path that, again, that their neural nets kind of found, Mm -hmm. you know, if you like look at how they did it. Yeah. Maybe we're all just like working our ways back towards some mathematical truth. We're all just convolutional neural nets. Yeah, exactly. All right, everybody. It is that time of the show. Let's shout out someone who came on Stack Overflow and helped to save a little knowledge from the dustbin of history. Congrats to Donna Hatton, awarded a lifeboat badge for providing an answer that saved a question, which was had a negative score of three or less. Now it's got an answer score of 20 or more. Why is String Builder so much faster than String? Asked nine years ago, helped over 15,000 people. And I believe this is a question about Java in this case. So why is String Builder so much better and faster than String? If you need an answer or you're just curious now that you've heard the question, we have an answer for you. As always, I am Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow. You can find me on X at Ben Popper. Email us any questions or suggestions for the program, podcast at Stack Overflow. And if you'd like what you heard and you are a human being and not a bot, leave us a rating and a review because it really helps. I'm Ryan Donovan. I edit the blog here at Stack Overflow, stackoverflow.blog. 
And you can find me on X at rthordonovan. I'm Joel Hellemark, the founder and CEO of Sana. I'm at Joel Hellemark on X, and you can find us on sana.ai. Wonderful. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you soon. 